Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode, Charlie Berger killed Cecil Knighton and was exonerated on grounds of self-defense. He was later injured in a fight with Whitey Doring and recovered in a hospital in Heron, where his wife Beatrice encountered one of his mistresses for the first time. Doring, on the other hand, died from his wounds. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 7 The Arrival of S. Glenn Young Mentioned earlier for his refusal to keep Berger's ring in his office, Marion attorney Arlie O. Boswell would in later years regret that he had ever known Berger at all. They were first introduced by Sheriff George Galligan of Williamson County, back in the days before Boswell and Galligan found themselves on opposite ends of the political spectrum, and before otherwise decent citizens were taking pot shots at each other in the name of the Klan and the anti-Klan forces. Still in bandages from the Doring affair, Berger seemed a nice fellow, despite his swagger. His thick black hair, dark skin, and high cheekbones suggested to the lawyer more an American Indian than a middle-aged Jew. There was a certain irony in that meeting in front of the old Kleinvik pharmacy in Marion. With the blessing of Sam Stearns, chairman of the Williamson County Board, and John Whitesides, a member of that board, Boswell was even then running for the office of Williamson County's state's attorney. Stearns and Whitesides were leaders of an organization known as the Marion Law Enforcement League, considered by many to be synonymous with the Ku Klux Klan. Because the avowed purpose of the Law Enforcement League was to destroy the criminal element in the county, especially the bootleggers, it is not too surprising that several of the local ministers were members. Rightly or wrongly, it was felt at the time that the county's failure to prosecute the alleged perpetrators of the Heron Massacre had given the green light to criminals of every sort, who had flocked to Williamson County in order to pursue their various callings. Boswell recalled, Sam Stearns and John Whitesides came to my office with a gentleman whom they introduced to me as Glenn Young, and they told me at one time he had been a United States Deputy Marshal, and most of his work was with the federal government, and that he wanted me to advise him how to get warrants and how they could be served by the state. They went out and followed my instructions, making buys with the purpose of predicating a search warrant. One day, those three men again came to my office and said they wanted to go to Washington to talk to the federal people. They advised me they had over a hundred buys. I went with them, and they paid my expenses, $100 a day, and boy, that was the most money I had ever seen in my life. Praising their candidate, the two board members probably gave an overblown account of Young's accomplishments. As verified by a letter from J. Edgar Hoover to Paul M. Engel, dated December 31, 1947, and made available to this writer by the Chicago Historical Society, 
Young worked for the Bureau of Investigation for the Justice Department only from the autumn of 1918 until early March 1919. His job was to track down draft dodgers, mostly in the Appalachians. Resigning from the Bureau a few years later under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover, it would receive wide publicity as the FBI, Young joined on June 25, 1920, the fledgling Prohibition Unit, a creation of the Treasury Department designed to battle those who chose to ignore the Volstead Act. This time his territory was Southern Illinois, a region rife with moonshiners and bootlayers. On November 7, 1920, during a raid in Madison, Illinois, he killed one Luke Vukovich. Tried in Springfield, Young was found innocent on July 10, 1921. Whatever joy the decision may have given Young was overshadowed by the fact that two weeks later he was dismissed by the Prohibition Unit. For a time, he worked as an agent for the Illinois Central Railroad in New Orleans. Early in October 1923, word came from Reverend A.M. Stickney that Williamson County needed Young. A Methodist minister in Marion, Stickney was a prime mover in the Marion Law Enforcement League. To establish his credibility with the group, S. Glenn Young introduced them to Congressman W.S. Hammer of Asheville, North Carolina. Hammer's more than ample girth impressed Boswell almost as much as his praise of an old friend. Early in the night of December 22, 1923, the Oddfellows Hall in Carbondale was the scene of an unusual gathering. Hundreds of men, recruited earlier by Young and others, began filing in. Young was waiting for them, as was the division chief of Prohibition Enforcement, Gus J. Simons, and two men from the Chicago branch, Joseph L. Loeffler and Victor Armitage. Calling for silence and getting it, Simons finally began to give the men their instructions. They were to leave the hall in small groups, heading for their various destinations. A federal search warrant signed by United States Commissioner William Hart was to be carried by each group. They were given a communal oath, and at 7 a.m. they departed in automobiles, each man with his gun and tin star. In Monday's newspaper print, the results seemed encouraging. Nearly a hundred bootlegging establishments had been raided. Much liquor had been confiscated. Many law violators had been arrested and transported to Benton to be arraigned before Commissioner Hart. S. Glenn Young, who had flushed the moonshiners from the mountains of Georgia and North Carolina with marked success, was now the man of the hour in southern Illinois. One who saw it differently was Leonard Stearns, son of the clan's grand cyclops Sam Stearns. Leonard had been among the party that raided the mining community of Culp. They broke into these people's homes, and regardless of where the wine was, if they found any, they knocked the heads of the barrels in and let the wine run all over everything. Later, he heard that personal property was stolen, and while he saw no stealing himself, Stearns did not doubt that it had occurred. His father had helped plan that first raid, and Leonard himself had been a willing participant. But in the midst of the mostly pointless wreckage, he was thoroughly disillusioned and disgusted. Most of the raiders followed up their success by escorting their prisoners at gunpoint to the commissioner's office in Benton for arraignment, but Leonard returned home. He did not participate in the four additional raids of January 5th, 7th, 
and 20th and February 1st, 1924, where even the semblance of legality was missing, the warrants being issued by local constables and justices of the peace. Rumors of robberies and brutality associated with these raids were numerous. Chapter 8. The Clan On February 8th, anti-clansmen who gathered at Heron's Rome Club were startled to learn that the clan was on its way, ostensibly for a confrontation. Actually only two men, Police Chief John Ford and the young policeman Harold Crane were approaching. Both men were taken into custody and might have come to harm if Sheriff Galligan and his deputy John Lehman had not intervened. Tensions being high and guns plentiful, a scuffle ensued that resulted in the wounding of Lehman. As the violence spilled into the streets and gunmen searched the alleys and backways for their enemies, the so-called Rome Club riot darkened another page of Heron's unenviable history. Remarkably enough, the only recorded casualty that night was Caesar Cagle, a prominent Klansman who was shot to death near the Jefferson Hotel. As word of Cagle's death spread quickly among his former associates, so did the news that one of Lehman's visitors in the Heron Hospital was his fellow deputy Ora Thomas. Gambler and bootlegger though he was, Thomas had the pluck of a storybook hero and a delicacy of manner and appearance that is usually found in better men. His strange combination of misdeeds and assets had won him the enmity of S. Glenn Young and his zealots. That he was one of those they accused of killing Cagle seems only fitting. Art Newman, remember that name, stated that Earl Shelton shot Cagle in the ear after ordering him to raise his hands. The incident was in retaliation for the Klansman's treatment of Shelton during a raid by Young and his followers on a roadhouse located at the Carterville Crossroads west of Heron, operated by Shelton and one Jack Skelcher. Young had demanded to know whom they were paying for the privilege of operating and had threatened to put out their lights if that information was not forthcoming. Newton claimed that Shelton told him Young had specifically asked if Sheriff Galligan and State's Attorney Delos Duty were the recipients of the payoffs. When no answer came, Cagle began to count to three. At two, he slugged Earl with his pistol and continued to strike him. As a final insult, the raiders chased the two from their business place, wrecked the premises, and then set it afire. True to his word that night, when Earl Shelton next met Cagle, the clan constable paid in full for his actions of a few months earlier. Or so reads the Gospel according to Newman, which appeared in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch early in 1927. He fails to mention, however, that Cagle died from wounds in the chest, not in the head. It should be remembered that Newman was never one to let the truth interfere with a story that would damage his enemies. Whatever the truth of the matter, it was the prospect of killing Thomas and Heron Mayor C.E. Mage Anderson, another of those accused in the Cagle killing, that drew Young and several hundred of his gunmen to the hospital. There, for most of the night, they blasted away at those within, often trading bullets with Thomas and the others. By some miracle, no one on either side was killed. In a footnote in his Bloody Williamson, Paul M. Angle mentions that a lad who underwent an operation for appendicitis during the affray died the next morning, presumably from shock. With the arrival of the militia from Carbondale, the shooting ceased. The guardsmen and their bayonets notwithstanding, 
S. Glenn Young now controlled Heron. On the morning of February 9th, after proclaiming himself acting police chief of that city, he ordered the arrest and jailing of Mayor Anderson, charging him with being a participant in Cagle's murder. He also ordered the arrest of Sheriff Galligan on the same charge. For a time, it appeared that Galligan might be killed. In spite of Young's grip on Heron and Williamson County, discordant voices were heard, none more clearly than Delos' duties. The state's attorney poured out his vitriol against the interloper with the pearl-handled automatics, albeit anonymously, in Fred J. Kern's Belleville News Democrat, and wisely packed an automatic of his own. Busy plotting Young's demise were the bootlegging Sheltons, whose base of operations was in St. Louis, but who were becoming more and more visible in Williamson County, where they had formerly lived. Despite his title of Grand Cyclops, Sam Stearns had friends in the Italian communities. They confirmed the episodes he had first learned of from his son Leonard. Still, it was only after he and John Whitesides and others had done some investigation of their own, and found to their satisfaction that Leonard's stories were substantially true, that they finally cut off Young's salary. Following the elaborate funeral for Caesar Cagle on February 10, 1924, stability of a sort returned to Heron. Two days later, Young turned the office of police chief back over to John Ford, who had just been released from the jail at Belleville, as had Harold Crane. Missing for a time and feared dead, Galligan, along with four of his men, stepped from, of all places, the county jail of Urbana. Mayor Anderson was released from the Marion Jail. As a result of the hospital shooting, 99 indictments were returned against the Klansmen by a grand jury in the Heron City Court on March 14th. The charges included conspiracy, kidnapping, and assault with attempt to murder. On the other side, only Carl and Earl Shelton were indicted for the killing of Caesar Cagle. With the support of the Klan, 27-year-old Arlie O. Boswell had won the Republican nomination for Williamson County State's Attorney. He had also succeeded in getting the cases of some of his clients transferred from the Heron City Court, where Judge Bowen was definitely hostile to the Klan, to the United States District Court in St. Louis. I was up there on a motion to dismiss them, he said, adding with no small amount of pride, and I got them dismissed. While in that storied River City, he also received a lunch invitation from Earl Lingle, a boyhood chum and classmate, something of a celebrity in the Red Hills around Anna, Illinois from whence he and Boswell came, Lingle owned a highly successful insurance agency that was located across the street from the East St. Louis Police Station and below the law offices of the well-known attorney Joe McLinn. At the last minute, Lingle remembered a noon appointment back at the office. Such are the pitfalls of success. So back they went, the insurance man to see his client, and the attorney to wait in an outer office. While cooling his heels, Boswell saw a tall, somewhat handsome man walk past, enter another room, and close the door. After Lingle saw his client off, he also went into the other room. But after a few moments, he came out and motioned to his friend to enter. When I went in there, this gentleman was standing up, and Lingle introduced him. Harley, I want you to meet Mr. Shelton. Shelton? Are you one of the famous Shelton boys? The tall man studied the floor for a moment. I don't know how famous we are, but I'm a Shelton, all right. Carl Shelton. After the two men shook hands, Boswell said, I'm damn glad to meet you, Carl. 
because I understand you were going to kill me when you laid eyes on me. Oh no, you're not on the list. The tall man said with a quiet laugh. The attorney said he was pleased to hear that. Shelton said they needed to talk. In essence, he had learned through their mutual friend Earl Lingle that Boswell, with the clan's support, would be the next state's attorney of Williamson County. Since the Sheltons planned to be in Williamson County, he thought it wise to get to know the man Lingle had characterized as a vicious prosecutor who wasn't afraid of the devil and all his imps. Boswell, flattered by this remark, replied that he didn't see how he could be called vicious since he hadn't prosecuted anybody yet. Evidently bored by the small talk, Shelton came straight to the point. We make our living violating the law. I want you to know that we expect that if we come down in your county sooner or later, we'll be charged with some crime and you'll prosecute us, and we expect that. But I also want you to know that we hire the best attorneys in the country. You know one of them, Joe McGlynn upstairs. I want to say that you'll never have any trouble with us in prosecution so long as you do it according to the law. If you try to frame us, you're going to be in very, very bad shape. After assuring him that the frame would not be a part of his legal artillery, Boswell said that if Carl or his brothers violated the law and were caught in his county, he and not one of his associates would do the prosecuting. Shelton said he appreciated that. Throughout their brief encounter, Boswell found him to be friendly, courteous, and with more of the manner of a banker than of a bootlegger. Certainly, he possessed none of the swagger that marked Charlie Berger. Boswell, however, was not deceived into believing that Carl Shelton was some teddy bear of a fellow with an overblown reputation. When we sat down and were doing this talking, he got up and pulled out his German Luger and laid it on the table. Well, I got up and pulled out my little old 38 automatic pistol and I said, Mr. Shelton, your pistol is a little bit bigger than mine. And he said, Yours will shoot just as many times and probably just as hard. And we laughed about it. Do you know, when I left, I left my pistol on the table, and Earl Lingle had to ship it to me by express. In those days, you couldn't ship it by mail. Don't think I wasn't just a little bit shook up by all this conversation. Next time, you are going to jail now. I will give your attorney 60 days to file a bill of exceptions in, but you cannot have one minute of delay in starting your sentence. That concludes another episode of Blanket Ford Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and online at BlanketFordRadioTheater.com to learn more about this project. Build your own blanket fort and tell a story.